I, I should have mentioned before, um, James and Sandra Whitney are on their way, or already in California, because he called me uh, yesterday afternoon when they were on their way. Uh, and James's sister has been sick for some time, and she is, she is in her last hours. So that's, that's why I uh, was platform elder today, and also why I'm doing scripture. So uh, I like that song. It, it, it painted a picture, didn't it? it? It painted a picture of heaven. And our scripture this morning is taken from Isaiah 3 and th through verse 10, 35, excuse me, Isaiah 35. And uh, this paints a picture that Chapter 35, the title is Hope for Restoration. And so this, this scripture holds out hope for us, doesn't it? With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like deer, like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool, and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh grass, and marsh, marsh grass and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived. And a great road will go through that once was deserted land, and it will be named the Highway of holiness. Evil-minded people will never, never travel on it. It will be only for those who walk in God's ways. Fools will never walk there. Lions will not lurk along its course, nor any other ferocious beast. Only the redeemed will walk on it. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord Man, what a, what a promise. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. May the Lord bless this picture. Thank you, John, and uh, Jesse and your group, too. Thank you for that. This morning, I want to talk with you about living life with the long view. Living with hope, in other words. 
about living with the absolute assurance that this life, as good or as difficult as it might be, is not all we get. Colette and I will be traveling back to Maine in a week and a half to do a funeral for an old friend, World War II vet, combat infantry soldier, wounded in the Battle of the Bulge. He's one of the last of a dying breed. And we're looking forward to seeing Maine again, especially in the springtime. Springtime is a very nice time of year along the quaint New England coast in Maine. It's just very pretty. In fact, if you come in uh, by flying into Manchester, New Hampshire, because the tickets are cheaper that way, and then drive north on I-95, there's a sign on the freeway just after you cross the big truss bridge over the Piscataqua River, where it dumps into the Atlantic there, it reads, Welcome to Maine, the way life should be. And if you go there in springtime or in the sunny summer or even in the fall when the trees have turned golden and red and the air is crisp, why it's so beautiful, it can take your breath away. In fact, it's a lot like this place. I mean, sometimes we have to pinch ourselves, don't we? To remind, to remind ourselves that we live in a place that most people pay big bucks to come to on vacation. I mean, we could be living in Kansas. <laughs> but I've always had an issue with Maine's welcome sign, the way life should be. It's not that it's a bad sign, it's just that it's not honest. It's too pessimistic. Because not too many miles up the road from that sign, you pass the Barbara Bush Children's Hospital in Portland where kids come from all over the region to get their cancer treatments. Kids living with cancer and dying with cancer. Imagine that. And where the food banks in the quaint little towns are feeding hundreds of families every day, every month, whose incomes fall within 125% of poverty level. Really? Is this the way life should be? Here's how a more honest sign might read. Welcome to Maine, the way life should be. And then a big parenthesis that reads, all things considered, like taxes, poverty, cancer, old age, arguments, sickness, selfishness, divorce, crime, mosquitoes, and winter. As long as you keep all that in mind, then yeah, this is as good as it gets. Life as it should be. Of course, you'd need three or four signs to put all that up, and so they don't. It's simply life as it should be. But if we're going to think about hope this morning, hope only makes sense if you realize that indeed, life as we find it right now is not the way it should be, no matter how good it might seem to us. Paul captures the essence of this in Romans chapter 8, where he reminds us that the whole creation has been taken prisoner and made bondage to decay, and it's longing for liberation. The whole creation, it's groaning, he says. And even more troubling is the reflection each one of us sees in the mirror, the honest realization that we have failed to reach the potential for which we were created. We fall short of the glory of God. How many is that? It's all of us. 
We sense the disappointment of having missed our destiny. It's when we're honest about disappointment that hope becomes meaningful. American theologian Frederick Beekner writes that every age has produced fairy tales, and he says it's because something inside of us, of every one of us, believes or wants to believe that the world as we know it is not the whole story. There's a nagging sense that behind and beyond reality as we perceive it is the really real. We hope that disappointment and disease are not just natural parts of life, that death is not the end, that the universe is something more than a big terrarium with a lid on it. As the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. So we keep spinning and repeating stories that hold the promise of another world, and not only of another world, but one that's not far away. You step into an ordinary wardrobe and suddenly you're in Narnia. You walk through an ordinary wood and stumble, into, stumble onto a cottage with seven dwarfs. This is a common theme in fairy tales. The other world turns out to be a lot closer than we thought. Not only that, but the fairy tales aren't just stories about the transformation of the world around us. They're also about the transformation of the central characters Ugly frogs turn into princes. Ugly ducklings turn into swans. The hidden becomes the reality. Now, Beekner goes on to say that the gospel story has all this in common with fairy, fairy stories, but with one big difference. The gospel is real. It's true. Jesus came and lived among us with this startling announcement. The kingdom of God is near, he said. Repent and believe the good news. And he offered proof. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, he once told his hecklers, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And drive out demons he did. And to the diseased and disappointment and even death itself. For three and a half years, the human race had a glimpse, as it were, into the window of the really real, the realm that we hoped was out there. This fallen world is not life as it should be after all. There's more. The kingdom of God is closer than we think. It's all around us. It's available to ordinary men and women and boys and girls like ourselves. There's a problem, though, of course, and you know what it is. Here's the problem. That window is no longer wide open. At least it's not as wide open as it was when Jesus lived among us. The other world, the really real, has not yet burst upon us in its fullness. And so we have, practically speaking, life as it is, where our food bank here in Squim feeds 800 families a month, and 49% of the kids in our public elementary school here in Squim come from families living within 125% or less of poverty level. Life as it is. We get tired and angry when things don't go our way, 
or people rip us off or our hair turns gray and falls out and we get sick and we die. But that's not the tragic part. Bad as that is, that's not the most tragic part. The real tragedy is this. We have gotten used to it that way. And in some ways, we have even come to like it this way. Life as it was never intended to be has become for us the way life should be. And maybe that's why Jesus told his followers to hope and to watch. As that three-and-a-half-year window was drawing to a close, Jesus warned his closest followers, and it's recorded in Matthew, the 24th chapter. He says, therefore, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect him. Here then is our problem. We live in the tension between the real and the really real. I'm going to tell you a story now that illustrates remarkably what I've just been talking about. It's the story of a garden paradise of exotic and unspoiled beauty. And within that garden, a fall of epic proportions with the unleashing of evil and all its brutality. The story of a long season of bitter oppression with all the trappings of life lived under the rule of a cruel tyrant, disease, devaluation of life, and death, all becoming natural, accepted parts of living. And an, an, and an amazing rescue in the very nick of time, a rescue that had always been hoped for, but was never really fully expected or anticipated nor fully believed. First, a short disclaimer. Last week, Colette talked about deliver us from evil, and in her message, she told you an amazing story of a prisoner of war camp in the Philippines that was liberated in 1945. Do you remember? It's only been a week. You should remember. It was a daring rescue mission. It's a true story. In fact, some years back, Bert, who's sitting right here, drove over and visited the man that planned and led that raid, Robert Prince. He retired in Kirkland, and then he lived in Port Townsend for a while as well. The book is called Ghost Soldiers by Hampton Sides, a wonderful story. Colette showed you this picture last week. It was later made into a movie called The Great Raid, and we actually convinced Bert to come with us to the movie theater to see it, yeah, right up there in Port Angeles. Yeah. Well, this morning, I will tell you, as the late Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story the part that Colette didn't tell you last week. In the 1920s and 1930s, the Orient was only beginning to be discovered by America. Juan Tripp, pioneering new trans-Pacific routes with his fledgling Pan American airline, brought places like Singapore and Manila within reach of common Americans. And the tales that came back 
for, were of far-flung places of exotic beauty and tropical mystique, garden paradises. France, France, Britain, and Spain had already been there for quite a while, but the age of colonization was fast coming to a close. So by the end of the 1930s, the United States had well over 100,000 servicemen stationed in the East, most of them on an island nation in the South Pacific, a former dominion of Spain known as the Philippines. To draw an assignment to the Philippines in the 30s was considered very lucky, not only by the soldiers, but by hundreds of young army nurses and doctors who sailed west on the voyage of a lifetime. It was a peach of a tour. As one army doc wrote home to his parents, life in the Orient is easygoing with the emphasis on manana and the siesta ethic. In fact, life couldn't have been better. Eight hours of easy duty, then off to the beaches to snorkel, sunbathe, or surf. The most common injury treated during those years in the army hospitals was sunburn. Even by 1940, with Europe embroiled in the war and the Japanese in China, everybody believed this idyllic existence would continue indefinitely. Within, with the tremendous military buildup here, a Japanese attack seems unlikely, a, daughter's, a doctor's letter home uh, continued. If I had to do it over again, I would have gone to England. Nothing's going to happen here. But for America, and Americans everywhere, a seismic change happened on the morning of December 7, 1941, at a place called Pearl Harbor. And from the moment the first bombs fell on Hawaii, the fate of nearly every serviceman in the Philippines was sealed. Within days, Manila was overrun by Japanese invaders. U.S. forces, outgunned, outmanned, outsupplied, retreated to a peninsula of land jutting into Manila Bay called Bataan. There, it was decided the army would make its last stand. Just offshore from Bataan, the Americans also held the island fortress of Corregidor, where the flamboyant General MacArthur commanded the army. Corregidor, it was said, was impregnable. It had always been the plan that should war ever come, Corregidor would be held until reinforcements arrived from America. But the Army's plan had not foreseen the annihilation of the Pacific Fleet in Hawaii. MacArthur knew help would never come. No food, no medicine, no ammunition. These men had, be had become forgotten men, orphaned, expendable, or, in the words of Secretary of War Henry Stimson, there are times when men must die. Barely a month after the fall of Manila, food and medicine had run out for the American defenders. By February, the lucky ones among them were eating monkey they caught in the jungle. By March, the tropical paradise had turned the tables on them with all sorts of exotic tropical diseases. Boils and raw sores covered their body, bodies. Malaria ran rampant, and all the medicine was gone. And yet, still the defenders held fast against the Japanese onslaught. By April, a good meal consisted of a slug and some dried insects. 
The entire army was starving to death. 24,000 men withered, withered, withered and lay dying in makeshift jungle hospitals. Everything but the ammunition was long gone, including MacArthur. Considered indispensable by President Roosevelt, he had, he had secretly departed by PT boat and submarine, leaving behind subordinate generals with orders to hold out till the end. But on Bataan, the commanding general knew the situation was hopeless. Bataan would be, he later wrote, the greatest slaughter in history. And so to save the lives of his troops, he ordered all remaining stores and fuel to be blown up and all equipment ruined. And then on the morning of April 8th, the same day General Grant had met Robert E. Lee at a place called Appomattox Courthouse 77 years before, General Edward King put on his last clean uniform, which he had been saving for this terrible task, the surrender of 78,000 soldiers to the Imperial Army of Japan. It would be the largest surrender ever in American history. But the general failed to understand the culture and the thinking of his enemy. The Japanese commander despised uh, the concept of surrender and his army despised people who surrendered. General King had negotiated for trucks to transport his emaciated men, but General Masaharu reneged. Instead, he forced the prisoners to march four abreast in columns of 100 men, 75 miles from Bataan to a POW camp in central Luzon. That three-week ordeal came to be known as the Bataan Death March. The carnage along the way was staggering. The wounded were expected to march with the others. Those who fell down or fell behind were disemboweled or beheaded by bayonet. Nearly 6,000 men perished on that march, so many that if those deaths had been apportioned evenly over the 75-mile course of the route, one would have encountered a corpse every 50 feet for 75 miles. But if the death march was bad, the first POW camp was even worse. Two out of every 10 American prisoners walking through its gates perished there. By May 1942, 17,000 of them had been buried in mass unmarked graves. From that central camp, the survivors were marched further inland to smaller camps where they would serve as slave laborers for the Japanese, building airfields and roads and bunkers and bridges until they died. One of those camps was known as Camp Cabinetuan. The conditions at Cabinetuan were nearly indescribable. The intense tropical heat, the complete lack of all medicine, the rampant filth and disease, the meager food rations, the merciless workload demanded of the men, the sadistic brutality of their captors, the utter hopelessness of life in that place. 503 men died in Cabinetuan in the month of June 1942. 786 men died in the month of July. Prisoners were issued no clothing or bedding. They wore loincloths and slept on bamboo mats, and they labored until they dropped, and when they dropped, 
They were beaten. But then, something very interesting and altogether unexpected began to happen. Out of the chaos and the carnage and the hopelessness, a semblance of order began to settle down on the camp. And then happened what happens eventually in all societies, even the most brutal. A discernible structure began to emerge. Those prisoners who had engineering talent took charge of infrastructure. They dug irrigation ditches and septic systems. They spiked the open latrines with poison substances like creosote. They staged bug-killing contests and found ways to fly-proof the garbage dumps. They declared jihad on lice and began to cut their hair. And finally, on December 15, 1942, Cabin Atuan reached a gratifying benchmark, its first zero-death day in nearly a year. 1942 became 1943. Elaborate grapevines sprouted for disseminating goods and information. Certain guards could be bought, so a black market emerged for medicine, cigarettes, extra food. Unbelievably, the camp began to slowly morph into a kind of enclave of America. A baseball diamond was laid out. Main thoroughfares took on familiar names, Broadway, Main Street, Fifth Avenue. More than that even, life inside the barbed wire fences of Cabin Atuan became a microcosm of life on planet Earth. The torturous weeks rolled slowly into months. The men wondered how long it would take America to battle its way across the Pacific to reach them. But months rolled into years. And little by little, life became more and more livable more normal almost, despite the constant brutality of their captors, despite the ever-present and daily reality of death and dying and struggle. In the camp, there were those who scoffed at the idea that rescue would ever come. Others believed it was only a matter of time. Yet all the elements of normal existence, relatively speaking, of course, could be found there. Among the prisoners were the selfish as well as the selfless, the skeptics as well as the believers. Hierarchies of status evolved. And, as incredible as it, as it sounds, existence at Camp Cabinetuan slowly evolved into life as it should be. Those well enough to go to work in the morning went to work. And those too sick to survive another day simply died and were buried. Wise prisoners traded contraband cigarettes to foolish prisoners in exchange for their food rations. And so the strong survived and the weak died. Whenever a prisoner tried to escape, the guards would behead 10 of his mates. So slowly, all thought of escape was eradicated. And the prisoners themselves established elaborate systems to guarantee that nobody would ever attempt to make a break. And nobody ever did. 1943 became 1944. Some read smuggled Bibles. 
Some played poker with smuggled cards. Some wrote poetry in smuggled tablets using smuggled pencils. And some simply languished in their despondency. The strongest among them were routinely siphoned off by the Japanese and moved farther inland for service as slaves to the empire. Occasionally now, an American plane could be spotted in the skies far away. When an American airstrike demolished the airstrip it had taken the, men's, the men months of backbreaking labor to build, the men cheered to see their work destroyed and then went back to work the next morning to repair it. Sometimes there were incredible acts of courage, such as at the time of the diphtheria outbreak and the men were dying miserable deaths. The Japanese decided to provide serum because they were afraid they might contact the contagion, but, they, but there weren't enough injections. Finally, there was only one injection left, and two dying soldiers needed the medicine. Which one of us will die first? One soldier asked. When told the other guy would die first, he said, then give him the shot. He's worse off than I am. And sometimes, for reasons unexplainable, there were miracles. The man dying of diphtheria, who gave the last shot to his buddy, woke up the next morning completely well. But always, men died. The grave diggers never rested. And yet, all things considered, all things considered, it had become life as it should be. The men had become accustomed to the macabre routine, desensitized to the brutal. They were hopeful of a, for a rescue, but they never fully believed it would come. Their former lives as soldiers in that glorious, carefree paradise seemed like 10 lifetimes ago. And 1944 became 1945. Mysterious rumors began to circulate among the inmates, rumors that the U.S. had returned to the Philippines and that the end might be near, and rumors that as, America, as the Americans advanced, the Japanese were liquidating the camps, most often by gasoline, the grizzly grapevine reported. The men would be forced to dig their own graves, then doused with gasoline and set on fire. So the men wondered, would they die at the hands of their captors, which seemed inevitable, or would they be rescued by their countrymen? But for most of them, that question had become simply an academic question. The truth of the matter was, the rumors weren't rumors. The Americans had landed on Luzon. MacArthur had kept his promise. He had returned. The Japanese were murdering their prisoners as they slowly retreated across the island, and the American generals knew it. So it was decided at the very highest levels of command that an attempt would be made to liberate the POWs at Camp Cabinetuan before they were all killed. Cabinetuan would be the target because it was the largest of all the camps and the, ones, and the one that held the most survivors of the Bataan Death March that hadn't been moved farther inland by that point. The attempt would be undertaken by an elite force of 121 hand-picked Army Rangers, the best in the U.S. Army, and time would be of the essence. 
It was said that there, it was one of the most daring missions ever undertaken. The odds of success were not high. Led by a colorful colonel with a Clark Gable mustache and a no-nonsense captain by the name of Robert Prince, who Bert met. This force would have to slip 30 miles behind enemy lines and cross two major highways consistently in use by the Japanese to move their armored divisions. The camp itself lay in the middle of a flat, treeless plain with absolutely no cover. So the final two miles would have to be traversed by crawling on their bellies with full equipment through razor grass without being spotted. They had no idea how many POWs they would encounter, or how many guards there were at the camp, or even the layout of the camp itself. They did know, however, that the camp sat beside a major road with frequent troop traffic. They also knew that less than a mile away, across a small creek in one direction along that road, 3,000 Japanese soldiers were encamped. And three miles the other way, on that same road, were 5,000 more equipped with tanks and artillery. So the odds were dismal. 121 men up against 8,000 Japanese with tanks and armor. But every single army ranger wanted to go. Timing would be critical. Radio silence would be critical. There would be no backup support should they be detected prematurely or should the plans go awry, and plans always go awry in warfare. They were entirely on their own, come what may. And then, even if everything did go perfectly, they would still have to figure out how to move hundreds of emaciated POWs back across 30 miles of enemy-infested territory under fire without being annihilated by the Japanese. The story of that rescue that you heard last week is absolutely unbelievable. They walked through 25 miles of enemy-occupied countryside, undetected. They crossed those two busy highways, undetected. They rounded up 50 water buffalo-drawn carts with their buffalo and their Filipino drivers and had them standing by four miles from the camp, ready to transport the captives to freedom. They split their 121-man force into three parts, two groups to sever the road and hold it closed against the onrush of Japanese troops that would be pouring in from both directions, and the third group to actually liberate the camp. They crawled on their bellies for two miles in broad daylight through waist-high razor grass, undetected. By nightfall, they lay in position so close they could watch in darkness through the lighted windows as Japanese soldiers stripped off their uniforms for the final time and prepared for bed. Everything went like clockwork, absolutely perfect, as if some divine hand were orchestrating the whole event so that the Japanese in the camp, who outnumbered the Americans 30 to 1, never knew what hit them. The attack was ferocious, deadly, and lightning swift. One small force of 30 kept 3,000 Japanese pinned down on the other side of the creek. Up the road the other way, the other small force pinned down 5,000. In less than five minutes, 
The Americans neutralized Japanese resistance at Cabinetuan and had breached the main gate. Army rangers ran down the main street of the camp shouting about, above the roar of gunfire and explosions, we're Americans. This is a jailbreak. Everybody head for the main gate. And then the situation turned truly bizarre. Not a single prisoner moved toward the main gate. They were too brittle mentally to comprehend what was even happening. Rather than running for freedom, they ran for hiding places, under the barracks, into the ditches, even into the latrines. One army ranger who sliced his way through the fence with wire cutters said the inmates of Cabinetuan looked like scared vermin running for cover when you turn the kitchen light on in Texas. They ran away from their deliverers, thinking it was a trick, thinking the Japanese would suddenly appear and wield death over them, as they always did. Some even fought the Americans. Later, they would say it was because they didn't recognize their own countrymen. And there wasn't a prisoner in the camp who weighed more than 90 pounds. And these army rangers looked absolutely huge. They were like muscled giants, and they moved so lightning fast. Most of the prisoners wore nothing but G-strings. These rangers wore strange uniforms with insignia they'd never seen before. When they'd surrendered their arms to the Japanese four years before, most of them laid down obsolete rifles of World War I vintage. These godlike soldiers fairly bristled with fantastic, fearsome weapons, handheld machine guns, and shoulder-launched rocket-like things that could take out tanks. They were truly scary. But there was something even more bizarre. Let me read you this paragraph. Even when the fear of a Japanese massacre had passed, even when most of the prisoners understood the rangers were Americans come to liberate them, many were still curiously reluctant to go. They seemed suspicious of their good fortune. They couldn't seem to shed their dour pessimism of captivity long enough to understand that captivity was over. Or perhaps at some subconscious level, they still found it hard to transgress the order of the Japanese, the only authority they had known for over three years. Some of the POWs even seemed ungrateful at first. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. American soldiers literally forcing the captives to the gate. Recalcitrant POWs trying to sneak back to retrieve some insignificant piece of hidden treasure, a contraband pack of cigarettes or a Bible or a book of poetry. Rangers kicking them in the rear end, trying to instill some sense of urgency and reality into their desensitized minds. All the while, they had talked of rescue. They had longed for rescue. They had hoped for it. But when rescue finally came, they couldn't bring themselves to go. <laughs> they had grown accustomed to their existence as slaves and prisoners, so they could no longer comprehend what it meant to be soldiers. They had lost their destiny. And the story, of course, has a happy ending. You know that because there was a book written and there was a movie made. 
And Bert would have never driven over to Kirkland to meet Captain Robert Prince if the story didn't end right, would he? He was inducted into the U.S. Army Ranger Hall of Fame in 1999. But it really did happen. And not a single American POW was lost or left behind at that raid at Cabinetuan. Those too weak to walk were carried by rangers. Some rangers carried two POWs plus their weapons the whole four miles back to the water buffalo caravan. Prince was the last man out. Alone, he ran from barracks to barracks, shouting names to make sure not a single American would be left, all the while expecting to be shot by Japanese defenders. Incredibly, only one soldier was lost in the raid, and over a thousand defenders were killed. As the reality of their rescue finally settled on them, prisoners too weak to walk found new strength and began to walk. Some of them walked the entire 30 miles back to American lines. They called it the Bataan Life March. And within a few months, they no longer looked like human skeletons. They ate as much as they want, wanted, whenever they wanted it, whatever they wanted, you know. And they returned home to a hero's welcome. But for some, it would take a long, long time before they could make the mental transition from prisoner to hero. It had been just over three years since they had been living in a tropical paradise, enjoying the good life. But what a difference those three years made. It's been a few thousand years now since the human race lived in a perfect paradise called Eden, living the perfect life. And what a difference these thousands of years have made. Just like those POWs, we have become accustomed to life as we find it. And we put up signs saying, the way life should be. We're captives and we don't even know it. But creation knows it. Paul says the whole creation groans. It's longing for its liberation from the bondage to decay. And not only that, he says, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for our, our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We hope for it. But I wonder, when those heavenly beings suddenly break into life as we know it, to rescue us and take us to heaven, how will that day be for us? Jesus said it this way. He was talking to his fellows one day and he asked this question. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's like a wistful statement, almost a rhetorical question. Like we are so enmeshed in this fallen life, so conditioned by it, that we won't even believe it when it comes. Yeah, we, we wait for him. But not completely, not fully. We're so distracted. We're so faint-hearted. We will be so totally shocked when this thing finally winds up, won't we? 
so completely overwhelmed. There are a number of parallels between the story and the gospel story. Here are just a couple. Jesus will come when we're absolutely not expecting him, even though we're expecting him. God took an enormous risk to save us. When Jesus comes, not a single Christian will be left behind. He's coming for all of us. How easily we get used to things that are completely unacceptable in the light of eternity and think of them as normal. Today, Cabinetuan is a park covered with fruit trees. A memorial wall there lists the names of nearly 3,000 Americans who perished there. Someday planet Earth, now the dominion of sin, will once again be a beautiful park with fruit trees bearing 12 kinds of fruit, each one in its season. But none of us are ever going to forget the reality of death. There will be ever nail scars in Jesus' palms an eternal memorial. But maybe the most significant parallel is this one. When perfection finally comes, when the really real breaks in at last upon our poor distorted realities, it will be so fantastic, so utterly beyond expectation, so tremendously unlike anything we have become used to or accustomed to, when it finally comes, it will simply seem unbelievable, unrecognizable. Maybe, there may even be some on that day who will hesitate as it was in the days of Noah, Jesus said. The rescue will take place in a twinkling of an eye. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be transformed from mortal to immortal, from flawed to perfect. But it's going to take some time for the adjustment, from, uh, from the adjustment, for the adjustment from prisoners of death to heroes of heaven. It's going to take some time to make that adjustment maybe about a thousand years. Only then will the final tears be wiped away. So, what's the point of all this anyway? What should we do? Well, maybe we should think about heaven a little more. It's good to enjoy things that God has given us. And there are really many, many blessings he has given us in this life. We should thank him for them. We should enjoy them. We should rejoice in them. But all the time, we must remember, this isn't as good as it gets. Maybe we should think a little more about heaven. On Cabinetuan, here's how one prisoner coped. He built an entire house. He mixed all the mortar. He laid every brick. He pounded every nail. He painted every square foot, all in his mind. Every day for two years, he built enemy runways, but he worked on that house in his mind. And when the war was over, he went home to Michigan, and he built that very house. Maybe we should think more about what we're going to do. <laughs> it won't be some of the things we do now. So don't give up your hope. Cling to it. Live in it. Think about it. 
Read and reread those wonderful glimpses God has given us in Revelation 21 and 22 and Isaiah 35 and 65 and 66 and Genesis 1 and 2. Read and reread the Gospels and watch Jesus banish disease and disappointment and death. Look for glimpses of the really real. The kingdom of God is near enough to taste. Ask God to open your eyes and see it the way life should be. Think about it often because it's almost time for rescue. Almost time. Okay, let's sing. <laughs>